We are going to continue tonight our study of church discipline, really under the broader heading of our responsibilities to one's one another. And this is one of the uh, big one another uh, responsibilities that we have to uh, contribute to iron sharpening iron, uh, to uh, the uh, the cultivation of the Christian disciplines within the life of the church, and it's a responsibility of us all. Uh, we we it, it's also uh, we said here uh, one of the ways one of the ways whereby one can be uh, uh, eliminated from church membership, and so we uh, uh, put it put it in that in that section here. But we are sort of migrating here to the responsibilities that we have towards each other. And uh, so what, what did we say last week were the uh, reasons for church discipline? There are two major ones. To keep the body pure. Okay, keep the body pure. And that's the, I'm glad that, that came up right away. It's usually, that's usually a sort of a secondary thought uh, that's, oh, yes, and that too. Uh, but it does seem that in the scriptures, this is a very prominent feature. Of, of church discipline. Um, it's designed to keep the body pure, either by purifying the individual or by purifying the whole body by removing a person who doesn't belong. Okay. And so it's got both, both elements. So what's, what's the second one? We've sort of breached it already. What's the second purpose of church discipline? For the person to um, repent. Yes. So repentance and restoration. So that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the happy end. I mean, that's, that's in, in some ways what we would really like to see happen all of the time. At the same time, it's not a lesser goal, uh, to make sure that the church remains pure. And so that's why we have to talk about it. And because it, it is, and particularly within a Baptist context, uh, a congregational context, we've got to make sure, uh, that the, Church remains pure because the whole decision-making process in Baptist life, congregational polity, depends on the spiritual vitality of each person who's a who is a participant in the life of the church. Okay, uh, we mentioned that there appears to be then uh, two uh, two different tracks. Of discipline, and we put it under the the occasion, the, the the heading occasions for church discipline. The one is sort of everyday church discipline, if I can. Any time there's a conflict in the life of the church, someone sins against you, uh, or there just seems to be some rift, interpersonal rift that takes place in the life of the church. There's, I think, there's a tendency among us all in such situations either to shut down or just to avoid. And uh, that's not an, a, a valid option within the life of the church. Uh, there is there's communication, con- confrontation as necessary, with the purpose of restoring relationships, because we're to, we're supposed to be a community. Uh, in fact, as we're going to see here, uh, in much of church history, um, uh, Baptist history at least, uh, the the church discipline was tied in with the communion service, right? So. Uh, we we talk about uh, you know we're all supposed to regard the body rightly, and in order to take communion, you know, we, if we don't if we don't properly regard the Lord's body, we don't tarry one for another. Christ, uh, that's that's a reason for not participating in uh, in the Lord's table, and so in much of Baptist history, what would happen is if there's a church discipline process ongoing, that would be the occasion then either for restoring or removing someone, the communion service. This person either needs to be reinvited to the community or he needs to be excluded from the community. In any sense, he, that, that person or those, those people who are caught in this struggle uh, cannot rightly take this Lord's table uh, because they would not be rightly regarding uh, their brothers and sisters in Christ and not rightly regarding the Lord's body. So private offenses, any private offense, any sin that's been committed, yeah, any interpersonal conflict always involves at some on some level some sort of a sin, at least 
a minimum, some misunderstanding that needs to be resolved. And uh, there's a, we're going to go through the process for that. Uh, but it's it's long and slow because sometimes it takes a little while to to uh, to to warm to confrontation. We all know that, right? First time we get confronted, what tends to happen? No, no, no. Uh, and so sometimes it takes a little time, and it, it's somewhat of an open ended process. Uh, in fact, we're going to see it sometimes take months to work our way through the process with the goal at every point of of restoration occurring. Okay, so any Really, any sin, any interpersonal conflict can rise to the level of church discipline if one or both of the parties is is obtuse and refuses to to reconcile with the other. Okay, and it's really that non-repentance ultimately that is the basis for church discipline. Uh, it's not so much the sin per se, but the refusal to reconcile in the wake of that sin, to seek repentance and restoration. We also said that there is a second type of offense uh, that leads to church discipline, and I say those are public offenses. Um, and I, I describe these things as sins that are widely known or particularly terrible sins, uh, or that involve uh, broad offenses that are publicly known. You know, it's 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 in the news. You know, somebody did something, um, and there seems to be something of an accelerated process uh, for those who have committed such sins. Um, in fact, First Corinthians five is sort of our exhibit A for that. Someone who is involved in incest, and it's known in the community that there are people in the church who are involved in incest. And Paul does not seem to say, okay, well, take him aside, you know, seek reconciliation. No, get get rid of this person from your midst. You know, there doesn't seem to be any hesitation here. No process. Remove that person from your midst and then seek the, or the restoration and reconciliation and forgiveness and repentance. Okay. Because what is at stake is not just that individual soul, but the reputation of the whole church. And if the, and if the uh, church gets a reputation for unrighteousness and unholiness, its witness is going to be severely curtailed. And so Paul seems to, to take situations like that and accelerate uh, the church discipline process. <clears throat> we also find in this category things like heresies, uh, whether, uh, but, the word heresy and schism are effectively the same word, splits, divisions. Um, whether those be doctrinal in nature or whether they be interpersonal, so that there is there is some sort of a, a an ongoing division within the life of the church, schisms, sects that actually are starting to grow within the life of the church. If one person can be identified as the cause of that, that needs to be addressed swiftly. In fact, you, you look at uh, some of the language that that Paul uses. If somebody comes in and preaches another gospel, you know, let him be damned. I mean, it's it's swift and harsh. Get that person out of here, okay? And so there there does seem to be two tracks here: the the private offenses that are everyday kinds of offenses, and then these severe things whether they be uh, uh, terribly wicked sins or crimes against the state, or whether they be things that are actually causing the, the church to, to, to rend apart, rend asunder uh, because, of, because of the activities of someone in the life of the church. Okay? And the reason we do this is because the Bible tells us that we watch for one another's souls. Right, we have a responsibility to one another to to restore such a person uh, as we are able. You know, it, it would be it would be a sorry family indeed that had individuals under the same roof committing terrible sins and and refusing to speak to one another and no one doing anything about anything about it. Uh, the, the, you know, a, a family needs to reconcile. It's not appropriate simply to just uh ignore it let people just sit in their rooms and and not you know address a problem no god intends for us to communicate with one another and confront one another 
get these things on the table, address them, and get them be, get them behind us. We don't cover these sins until they're addressed. Okay, but there is great value. You know, Peter we we saw last week uh, gives gives uh, gives a, a good a plug for uh, for covering sin. But we, we concluded after looking at that verse that that means it's only after, only after the sin has been addressed that we cover it. Um, so once the sin is laid out on the table, reconciliation has been made, repentance has been sought, forgiveness has been extended. At that point, we cover it up. We don't keep bringing it up. It's, it's over. It's done. Okay. So we don't cover sins. Uh, covering sins is the worst possible thing we can do uh, if we have not first sought repentance and reconciliation. And so we need to engage in church discipline, 35, page 35 here, because it's necessary to the role of the pastor and the church in guarding souls. Pastors are to be obeyed and submitted to because they keep watch over you, your souls, as men who must give an account. Okay, so, so they, they, in some senses, are responsible for your behavior. So, it, it, so when 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 a pastor particularly comes to you and says, "We got a problem," you know, you, there, there's something that you've got a sin problem that you need to address. Don't imagine that person is just on a power trip, or or you know, just is a is a is a an intrusive person. Now he's got a responsibility before God to address that problem because he's guarding your soul. He's guarding your soul. And in fact, it's not just the pastor that does that. Ephesians 6 18, the term same term that's used in Hebrews 13, is used of the church's collective responsibility to be on the alert with all perseverance and petitions for all the saints. Okay, so just as the pastor must guard your souls, so also we must guard each other's souls with all perseverance and prayer. Okay, so that's our responsibility before God, not to just simply ignore sin in the body, but to, but to uh, address that sin. So we've argued above with Lehman that church membership is a formal relationship between the local church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. You might not have remembered that, but we, we mentioned that earlier. And if that's the case, it would be unthinkable for a church or its pastors who are charged with this oversight to simply uh, allow a church member to engage in unrepentant sin that is not addressed, or to drift away from the congregation without someone trying to rescue them. Okay, so it's it's our responsibility before God to rescue one another, to guard each other's souls, not only our own, but each other's. Um, secondly, let her be here, church discipline is necessary to maintaining a pure membership. Okay, we, we, we've mentioned that there's three means whereby one can leave the membership of a local church, by death, by transfer to another church, or by disciplinary expulsion. Now, the scriptures make no provision for individual members resigning or withdrawing from membership. To resign or withdraw from membership without joining another is tantamount to apostasy. Hebrews 10 says, if you, if you, if you abandon the assembly, then the, the, the situation is dire. I mean, there, there's, there's no bringing such a person back to repentance. Okay. So, so it's, it's very important that if someone walks away from the church, it's not just, I'm going to walk away and then find another church. It's, I'm going to transfer to another church. Uh, so someone who actually just sort of drifts off or stops coming or abandons the church is in, in a serious state. Uh, they would be called here in the, in, in the biblical language, apostates. Okay, someone who's walked away from the faith. So members are inducted by a vote of the full membership and are released the same way. Okay, 
And the idea of maintaining inactive roles or dropping people from the roles not only doesn't have biblical precedent, it also constitutes a tragic breach of the church's responsibility to guard the spiritual welfare of its members. I, some, sometimes people get a little bit antsy when they hear that, you know. Well, wouldn't it be a lot better for just sort of let them go? Rather than risk some sort of a rift or some sort of trouble within the life of the church, maybe they're going to get really angry at you. Maybe they'll, it'll, it'll come to the full church and there'll be disagreement over whether that person ought to be. Maybe it would be a lot easier for us just to let them go. But that's an unloving thing to do, right? Uh, imagine a mother who had a child who just says, you know, I'd, I'd rather not risk having a confrontation with my child. I'll just let them leave and never see them again. That wouldn't be much of a mother, right? Okay. Uh, and so and so the same thing is true of us. It's our, our spiritual family. We need to do what's necessary in order uh, to to preserve and restore the community. And then I say specifically then, it prevents the corruption of the government of the church because those who are running the church are the members. And if the members are in deep sin, uh, they oughtn't be running the church. And so that's why church discipline is so necessary for us. Okay. So how is this done? And uh, I say there's some question as to whether there are one or two procedures for uh, carrying out church discipline. Um, I've suggested above that there there is there's a there's a procedure for private offenses, a procedure for public offenses. Um, some would say no, there's there's no reason to to think that is the case. That everything is treated the same way. Uh, perhaps a an in between position, which I'm I'm quite amenable to here, is that if you have a gross public or 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 a heinous sin, that you pretty much skip the first two steps of the private offense. So rather than going one person or one or two with you, since it's already been rendered public before the whole church, it, it rushes immediately to that third third step bring them to the church. And so I, I think that's perhaps a, a better way of putting it rather than thinking of two completely distinct approaches to church discipline. There's one approach, uh, but one's excel- it can be accelerated in specific situations. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay, so what, what if, what's the procedure then for private offenses? And there probably are our major text here is Matthew 18. There's others, uh, but Matthew 18 probably lays it out most simply and, and directly. If your brother sins against you, remember, and, and this, this is critical here. This is, this is a sin. Okay. If there's a sin, uh, go and show him his fault. Show him what he's done wrong. And that, that doesn't mean that everything that someone does that annoys you uh is to be the the subject of this activity here. I mean we get annoyed by a lot of things within the life of the church. Uh but really we shouldn't be uh confronting one another over annoyances. But we should be confronting one another over sins. So someone sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. At this point, nobody else really knows about this or or perhaps, uh, you know, there may be somebody else who knows, just isn't saying anything. But you found out about this sin, and y- your responsibility is just to go to that person. Nobody else, just that person, just between the two of you. And if he listens to you, you win your brother over. He listens and says, you know, you're right. I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I, I sinned against you. I, I sinned against the church. That, that was wrong of me. Confession is made, forgiveness is sought, and the confession should be as large as the scope of the crime, right? That's, that's often the question. So, so, so does he have to go in front of the church to confess uh, this sin? I, 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 it seems to me that the best course of action is that his confession needs to be as great as the scope of the sin. So if three people know about the sin, he should confess it to those three people. He doesn't have to you know, air out all of his dirty laundry before the whole church, uh, unless 
he committed a sin against the whole church that the whole church knows about. In that case, a, 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 a larger confession is in order. But keep this as, as small as we can. That seems to be part of the intent. Just between you and the two of you. If he listens, you win your brother, it's over, it's done. Now cover this sin. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. We'll have to talk about what those witnesses are witnessing here in just a moment. If he refuses to listen to this little conference here, tell it to the whole church. But if he refuses to listen even to the whole church, treat him as you would, if I can put it, as an unbeliever, as a pagan and a tax collector. And then the conclusion which I think is a part of as much a part of this this section as the other three verses. I tell you the truth, whatever you collectively, the church, binds on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you collectively, the church, loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let's let's walk through this. First is the personal private confrontation in verse five. Again, and the emphasis here is personal and private. And ideally, the whole church need never be consulted in matters of private sin. You secure repentance amicably uh, within the within this conversation that you have with this with the uh, one who's who's committed this committed this sin, and uh, you don't have to arouse the defiance and the defensiveness and resentment that often attends you know a whole bunch of people getting involved. Okay, you know somebody did something fairly minor, and now thirty people descend on them. No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You just just you and him. You know, resolve the problem and, and, and move on. Now, one might technically quibble whether this is has risen to the level of church discipline. I think it is because it's discipline that takes place within the life of the church. Uh, it's not whole church discipline at this point, right? The whole church hasn't become involved. But it is discipline within the confines uh, of a local church. Next, you move to this private conference. So if they hear you, you run your brother, it's over. But if they don't listen, they dig in their heels and say, no, I, I, you know, I, I cussed at you and you deserved it. You, you, I'm not, I'm not taking that back. No way. Well, you know, if that confrontation fails to restore the erring brother, then two or three witnesses are invoked to assert additional pressure upon the offender so that he repents. Now, some questions here that we have to ask and answer. What is the purpose of these witnesses? What are they witnessing? And who are they? And there's two basic clusters of answers to these questions. Some suggest that the witnesses are personal eyewitnesses of the sin. Okay, so, you know, you... you, you you cussed at uh, somebody in the parking lot because they cut you off, and there happened to be two or three other folks around that heard this whole confrontation. They're the witnesses. They they are brought to bear and say, you know, I heard you say that too, and that was wrong. And so each one in turn would be able to say, no, you shouldn't have done that. You need to repent, okay? And so that's that's one one suggestion here. So the purposes of these witnesses in this scenario is to confirm that a sin actually happened in this makeshift court, if you can call it that. So it, so they, they're there to make sure it's not some sort of petty, groundless charge, uh, he said, she said, but that it's a bona fide sin. And, 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 they, and they, they quantify it, they certify it. Yes, a sin happened, and it needs to be addressed. Those who hold this view allow for the witnesses to be church officers, church members, other Christians, even unbelievers. The, 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 what, what qualifies a person as a witness in this case is all the sin. In favor of this view, we note that contextually, this appeal to Deuteronomy 19.15, right? Uh, this, this verse that says, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Uh, this is a text that clearly involves eyewitnesses of which a person is accused. In fact, the only other usage of this in the New Testament is 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not accept an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses. It's a a, a rather important, you know, important thing to recognize as part of the biblical 
process here because we're in a, we're in a day where the accuser is always right, right? You know, you know, the Kavanaugh hearings and, and others like it. Somebody says, Hey, he did something to me. And you automatically believe the girl who made the accusation against Cuomo or Kavanaugh or whoever it happens to be at this time. And, and the Bible says, you know, before that person can be deposed, whether he's as a Supreme Court justice or whether he's a mayor, whoever the case may be, we have to follow due process. And if it's just a he said, she said kind of a situation, you can't move any further because there are no witnesses. Okay, You can't just assume that because I don't like Cuomo, therefore he must be guilty, or I don't like Kavanaugh, so therefore he must be guilty. Now, that doesn't work. If there's, if it's just a he said, she said, or he said, he said, or whatever the situation may be, we can't go any further with the discipline process. Okay. Uh, now sometimes there's occasions where perhaps, uh, you know, uh, the church can come alongside someone to help. You know, you know, I, this, this person is sinning against me repeatedly and the church can come along and say, okay, We'll, we'll help document this. And this will help not only within the church court, but also perhaps in the civil courts as necessary. We can help you that. It's not as though you say, well, hey, our, we wash our hands. We won't, we won't deal with the problem. And the church can be involved in solutions. But in this particular verse, the witnesses have to be there in order to confirm that a sin actually occurred. Okay, there is no church discipline in a he said, she said situation. You have to have, you have to have proof. In fact, that's why the, uh, the Constitution is set up and the Mosaic Law is set up with actually as many protections and more protections for the accused than for the accuser. Okay, it's very important in, in the scriptures. Practically, a failure, I say here, to require eyewitnesses would reduce church discipline to much unsubstantiated and um, unsubstantiated finger pointing, slander, character assassination, serious issues that just destroy the life of the church. We 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 only go go into church discipline if there's something there, okay? And if there can be no evidence that there's anything there, we can't move forward. But the question here is not so much that there are, there is proof that the sin occurred, but rather, so, so here's the second view, that the witnesses are invoked to, to observe the non-repentance. In this case, we are not talking about something where it's a he said, she said, but a, a, an established sin. Perhaps even the person admits, yeah, I did that. But, I, but I'm not going to say I'm sorry, you know. In such a situation, the witnesses can be invoked here, not so much to confirm that a sin occurred, but that a sin is continuing to occur. That person did sin and won't repent. Okay. And so the, so the, and this seems to be perhaps, uh, the, uh, the better way of taking this passage. Again, I don't want to take away from the fact that there has to be a Genuine demonstration and proof that a sin occurred, but it does seem that these witnesses do more than just witness the crime. They're witnessing the non-repentance of that individual. And if that is the case, then we're probably talking about people who are church members at this point. We, we, we wouldn't use an unbeliever uh, to establish the non-repentance. So now it's an in-church, an in-house, an in-church a kind of situation. And, uh, and, and my suggestion here, and I go through the, uh, um, through the, uh, through the, through the arguments here, this seems to be probably the, the point that is being made, uh, that, uh, these, these, these individuals who are witnesses then serve in the more official court of the whole church and they would be called upon as witnesses. Okay. What happened? This person sinned. The sin is established, and he won't repent. And we're we're observers of that. It hasn't happened, okay. And so I think that's I think that's probably what we have, okay. So it has to be asserted 
that there is proof of wrongdoing. This has to happen. If there is no proof that a sin occurred, then we can't move forward with, with church discipline. You're not going to just railroad somebody out of the church because you don't like them and you made up some sort of cock and bull story about them. That won't fly in church discipline. Okay. And so then we find that uh, uh, these witnesses then confirm that a sin has occurred and that repentance has been sought but not achieved and therefore it needs to be taken to the next step. Now, before I do that, what do you do? If you had a he said, she said tiff in the church in which guilt cannot be definitively established. You know, I, most recent situation that I, I was aware of here is there were two women that got into a, a, a verbal altercation about, uh, about the, uh, the songs that were being sung in the church. Okay. And they really were going after each other. And, uh, so we had, I'd sit down. And we sat down with them, and so, so what happened? Well, she did it, and, and the other one, no, 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 she started it, and it's like, okay, 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 wait, 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 okay. Um, did anybody see this? No? Okay. Well, then both of you <laughs> need to address this problem between you, okay? I can't establish here, based on this conversation, who started it or who finished it. All I can say is that both of you need to seek Reconciliation. Okay. So the attempt then would have to be for both of you to seek reconciliation. Now, if both of them refuse to reconcile, it may be possible. It may be necessary that both of them should be brought to the church and said, these, these Yodia and Syntyche are not getting along. And they then, you know, if, if they can't, if they, if they can't solve this problem between them, then they need to be removed into the sphere of Satan in order to, to, to get their heart right with God. Okay. Uh, but if all you have is a he said, she said situation, you can't, uh, charge one person, uh, uh, with, with a, with a crime that can't be demonstrated. Now, this is, this is part of the whole tenor of, of, of law in scripture. Okay. Any, any questions up till this point? Well, then the next step would be a public hearing before the church and a public plea for repentance. Okay, so take it to the whole church. And then the whole church sort of leverages their weight of influence against that sinner so that that person is compelled uh, to repent. So if the two previous steps are exhausted, it becomes now a matter of public record. Uh, that which could have been kept between one or two or two or three now is, is, is expanded to the whole church. In fact, sometimes the threat, the mere threat of that happening is enough for people to seek repentance. So, so again, this is all designed in a very careful and, and strategically designed sequence, uh, in order to, to, to get reconciliation at every step. Okay, and so the church at this point as a corporate structure has been invoked because the unity of that church has been threatened. Okay, there's sin going on in the church. The whole church is threatened by that. And so the whole church is concerned with resolving this problem. So the church as a whole hears the case, establishes guilt, and entreats the one who is the sinner to repent under peril of exclusion. There's a parallel passage in 2 Thessalonians 3, which suggests that the window of entreaty may be extended. You know, we, we we're walking through this in a matter of minutes here. But every one of these steps could have days, weeks to try and compel people to, to come back uh, to a place of community and unity with one another. This is this is not a this is not a speedy process. Okay, and sometimes it takes time. Okay, in fact, in Second Second Thessalonians, there seems to be a period of time where that the church calls upon someone to repent, but don't associate. And and so this person says, "I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to listen to the lot of you. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I refuse. 
Uh, that, that person deserved what I gave them. Okay. So what's the church's response? Well, don't associate with that person in order that he may feel ashamed. But don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. And so, so while this step is ongoing, the church is, is trying to leverage against this person. Say, you, you know, you really need to repent. Well, he deserved it. No, 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 no. The church has spoken. You really need to repent. You should be ashamed of what you're doing to the church. Okay, and this can happen over the course of time. If the accused, however, does not repent during this period, and perhaps the church will assign some sort of, of, of time in which this must happen, the church moves to the last step, at which time the church no longer treats the accused as a brother, but in the terms of Matthew 18, as a tax collector and a publican, as an unbeliever. So there's a period of time in which the church is lovingly but firmly trying to get that person to repent. And it's, it's an awkward situation. It's a difficult situation, but you're not, you haven't written that person off yet. Okay. We're, we're not saying that that person is an unbeliever. We, we, we're still assuming that person is a believer who is, who is caught in a sin. So restore that person gently. Don't treat him as a, as a, as an unbeliever, but as a brother. But as we, as we see that the, the progression marches on, if after a certain amount of time that that, that fellow refuses to repent, then we do move to that step, that last step in which you actually treat that person not as a brother who is caught in sin, but rather as someone who is not a brother. This person had a false profession of faith as evidenced by the fact that that person refuses uh, to repent and to be part of the community. And so then they're excluded. Membership is revoked by the body, normally just prior to the church's regular celebration of the Lord's Supper. Because, as 1 Corinthians 5 says, don't even eat with such a man. Okay? And so that's why most Baptists have tied that in with, with the Lord's table. If we've gotten to this step, we don't recognize that person as a brother any longer, and we don't share the Lord's table with them. And that's, and, and, and the goal of that is to, again, terrify that believer, if he is a believer, into saying, you know, they, they just regarded me as an unbeliever. The, 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 the the collective testimony and opinion of the church is that I don't have any of the fruits of faith and I'm not a believer. And that should terrify that person, if he is a believer, into repenting. Or if he's not a believer, then you know it will, it will push him further away. Uh, but in that sense, in that case, we're preserving the purity of the church. Okay? So that's that's the procedure for private offenses. It's a long procedure, sometimes can take months. And, uh, and in fact, I, 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 there have been occasions, I, I, I remember even in my own church, where, you know, something happened in the church, and why isn't there any progress being made? And I, I've been wrong for doing that, you know, because I don't know what's going on. There may be progress being made. There may be work being done behind the scenes. I shouldn't assume that nobody cares, Okay. Because sometimes this takes time, okay, and, uh, and and that's the case. But the second procedure is much more swift. So, but before we get there, any any questions that you have for uh, ordinary church discipline, the kind that really should be ongoing all the time, right? I mean, it again, church discipline is not just the last step of throwing someone out; it's the ongoing confrontation, conversation whereby community is preserved on a weekly basis, right? So any questions on that? I'm, okay, Mark, well, let's move to... Oh, yeah, yes, Jen. Mark, I, 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 uh, and not exactly, but kind of ties in, and, you know, I may not want to deal with this now, but kind of going on with last week, <clears throat> you have at two ends of the, two ends of the spectrum, a, a person that, that is looking at things and trying to figure what's right, what's wrong, and and is honestly asking, there's that at one end. And then there's the obvious schismatic 
at the other end, who's just obviously is a troublemaker and is bossy and et cetera, et cetera, uh, and has to have their own way. What, what, this is kind of in the green, the yellow and the red. uh, And, and what, what, what do you look for to see that a person that was in the green is kind of starting to move into the yellow uh, toward the red? In other words, someone that was, uh, you know, somebody that was honestly seeking to do right is just becoming a troublemaker. Yeah, I think schism is the issue. Yeah, and and that's and that's why that's why that language is used. Heresy is that's that's what the meaning of heresy is, right? It's it's a it's a it's a it's a breaking apart, a schism. So if a person has gone from, I'm not sure. Um, I'm still searching this out. Please bear with me to, you know, I've come up with my decision and the church is wrong. You know, you know, Pastor Brown, he's full of it. You know, he's just an idiot. Now we've got a problem. Okay. So he's digging in his heels and saying, I disagree and actually trying to divide the church to take sides in a sectarian kind of way. I believe, I believe Wes. No, no, I think Ken's right. And so now we've got, now we've got a division within the life of the church. So it seems to me schism is the issue. Once, once. In other words, somebody that's wanting, kind of wanting to see a split. Or, or, or wanting to convince people within the church to see things his way rather than the way of the majority or the way of the leadership. So that's 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 to me the issue. So it's it's not so much that there's a disagreement or even a, a, a point of 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 confusion. That that's fine. That happens all the time in the life of the church. I mean, we it, it's it's a it's a sort of a fake kind of a church in which there's never a disagreement because because there are right. We have disagreements and 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 they and and sometimes we just have to agree to disagree over certain things, you know, and it's okay. What what happens is that sometimes those disagreements are not an a, an agreement to disagree, but rather an emphatic we are going to disagree and we're going to divide over that, and that's that's where 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 Paul steps in and says no that doesn't happen in the life of the church shouldn't happen in the life of the church if that happens it needs to be addressed directly and immediately. Okay. Thank you. Okay, so public offenses here, and I'm going to use this example in First uh, Corinthians 5, that should say 4 and 5, not 545. There aren't 45 verses there. Uh, so 5, 4, and 5, 7, 11, and 13, I've, uh, I've included portions of those verses. Again, this is a situation when you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit and in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, hand this man who's defined here as someone who has who has had uh, had sexual relationships with his father's wife or consort take this man hand him over to satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the lord get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral and greedy or an idolater or a slanderer or a drunkard or a swindler. So here, here's a, an enumeration, a listing of some of these egregious sins that call for swift and immediate action. Don't even eat with that person. Expel him from among you. Okay. So if a believer commits a highly visible public offense, or one of a particularly scandalous nature, you know, it's in the news, preservation of the integrity of the whole church becomes more urgent than the restoration of its members. Okay, Again, that, that's how it starts. There is reported among you a kind of sin that isn't even tolerated among the, uh, among the unchurched, among unbelievers. That's really bad. That should not be happening in the life of the church. And if that happens, and it's known, then we need to address it. Why? Because these unbelievers know about it 
and the church's testimony has been besmirched. You know, the, the, you know, you you want you want to you want to blow up a church and and see it wither up and dry on the vine. Get a scandal going, and no one wants to touch the place. People will drift away, and what's left? No one's going to come in new to take their places. And so, and so, Paul's advice here—not no, more than advice—is his instruction here is to act swiftly. Okay, so since the sin is already a matter of public record, the shortened process begins with step number three. We don't have a, you know, one or two people, you know, just me and you, and then one or two others. We've already raised it to the level of the whole church. The whole church already knows. In fact, the community, perhaps at this point, knows. Okay, and so the, the the process begins with step three, and 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 he and Paul is quite urgent. He urges the immediate expulsion of the erring brother by the whole church. So the church does have to gather. Yeah, when the whole church is present, and I'm there in spirit, you need you need to get together as quickly as possible and make a judgment swiftly here. And so he urges the immediate expulsion of the erring member as soon as the congregation can assemble. Baptists are historically united on this swift and decisive response to egregious sin in the body. Um, so, so the question is sometimes asked, well, then, I mean, what if that person repents? I mean, what, what if, you know, somebody's, in, you know, somebody's engaged in a horrific public crime, you know, robbed the bank and shot the teller, you know, um, and, you know, it's just a terrible situation. Uh, what do we do if he says, you know, I shouldn't have done that. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, should, should we should we then forgo church discipline? Oh, well, I said I'm sorry. So well, that's all we can do. Okay, well, let's let's move on like nothing has happened. No, no, no. That's not how it happens here. Okay. Uh, it seems that in the case of egregious and public offenses, even if that person who's guilty repents immediately, this expulsion should take place and remediation should be sought from from the from outside the church okay now some do suggest that you know hey he repented that that's done well but uh, the 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 language here in 1 Corinthians 5 seems to suggest that the expulsion should proceed for the integrity of the church which is still at stake it's still vulnerable okay and for this reason church discipline should move forward even if that person says, you know, I'm wrong, I shouldn't have done that, for the sake of the purity of the church, this should happen. Now, this is not a permanent thing, you know. It, it's, it's not as though that person is forever out of the church and never invited back. But that should be something that should have to, he should have to be reinstated uh, rather than simply uh, preserved in his membership here, Okay. Although I, I do allow for churches to be sovereign in that, that's much my that's my take on the language here, First Corinthians five, and, and the purpose that Paul seems to be concerned about. Okay, so any questions on that? Yes, Sharon, you're uh, muted. Okay, I have a question on someone who has been um, convicted of a um, um, sexual, uh, yeah. whatever. Um, and they've, they've gone to jail, they paid their debt, they want to come back to the church. Yes. Um, do, is it okay to let them in? Do you have stipulations for them to be let in the church? Or Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think a person like that is somehow barred from church forever just because they sin. However, the church does have a responsibility, one, to protect its own, just in case that person persists as a predator, so you, you, you've got to you've got to protect them. In fact, sometimes it's legally binding. The church has to do that. Okay, um, so so bringing them back into membership does not mean that they are restored to every single privilege of membership that is enjoyed by everyone. Uh, at one of the churches I was an interim at, there was fellows in that situation, and uh, there was. He had he had one door he could come in. It wasn't the main door. It was a it was a door. Uh, he had been in, engaged in, in in sexual sin. Uh, he had he if he needed to use the bathroom, the 
the pastor had a bathroom in his office. It's the only one he could use. He wasn't allowed there. He wasn't allowed down the hallway where there were nurseries. Okay. The only places he could be was in the auditorium and in the fellowship hall. It's the only places he was allowed to be. If he was somewhere else, he was out. Okay. And so, so you make provisions to make sure that that person is not a threat to the church or to himself and that that person is in fact towing the line. Uh, but the idea that someone should be forever banned from the life of the church really doesn't seem to fit the pattern of scripture, right? I mean, what about poor Paul? He was a murderer. Yeah. And, and yet he was actually brought to a position where he was fully trusted, but remember what happened? Ananias had to bring him in and say, you know, he, he's safe. <laughs> he's okay. He, you can have, you can talk to him. He's, he's a real person. You don't, don't, you know, touch him and he's okay. He won't hurt you. He, he won't cut your head off. And so there, there was a, apparently some sort of an easing of Paul into the life of the church because of his background. Mm-hmm. Um, not a, not a prohibition of him ever being part of a church. Okay. That can be hard, you know, a particular, and, and there, there may be good reason for, for a church to say, you know, perhaps this church might not be the best place for you to go. We don't, we don't, we don't have the personnel to handle you. We don't have the, the facilities that to, to handle you. Or perhaps, hey, one of your victims still goes to the church. It's just not, no, not a good idea for you to come here. Go somewhere else. Uh, and I think that's a very legitimate thing for a church to say. Uh, but I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a poor testimony. And it's, it's a poor church that would say, you know, you've committed a sin and therefore you're banned forever. That, that doesn't seem to fit the pattern of scripture. Other thoughts? That's a great question. Okay, so we conclude here, church discipline is necessary because, as Hammett says, the Baptist remedy, it is the Baptist remedy for those who at one time time gave visible evidence of regeneration and joined the church, but later, by their actions, betrayed their profession of faith. It was necessary if the regenerate church membership was to be an ongoing, visible reality and not just a theory. Greg Wills goes even stronger, is even stronger. He says, Church discipline is ugly, it is unpleasant, but it is as necessary to the successful practice of congregational church polity as is the gospel itself. Wow. It's little surprise then, he says, to find that Baptists of bygone generations placed discipline at the center of church life, not even preaching the gospel was more important to them than the exercise of church discipline, because church discipline established the gospel established who was in and who was out. And so it, is, it was as, as important to preach the gospel and bring them in as it is to make sure the gospel is preserved in all of its purity uh, by preserving the purity of church and, if necessary, sending them out. Okay? Does that make sense? Let me just go through this next section really quickly here. I know we're, we're exhausted our time, but I want to get a fresh start next time with the government of the church here. But in addition to our responsibilities uh, to have conversations with one another, confront one another, restore one another, preserve the community as a whole, we also have other duties of church members. And I say historically, Baptist churches and manuals have made much of this. Uh, you take all of the one another passages in the New Testament. I think there's 55 of them. Um, I think there's about 19 distinct things that we're supposed to do for one another. So there's a lot of repeats, but 55 times that one another phrase appears. And each one, each time, we should not think of one another in the broadest sense of you and all humanity, all of your neighbors, but rather one another within the confines of life, local church. These are our responsibilities to one another. These are the duties of church membership. Okay. And the fact that sometimes we don't emphasize these things, I think has really colored the value of the church. And that's why I, these are the kinds of things I really think ought to be included in a church covenant. Uh, perhaps l- less emphasis, perhaps on things like, you know, not taking the, you know, 
taking intoxicating drinks as a beverage and replace them with these one and other passages because we've got great biblical warrant for these. Again, not, not, not to say that a church can't make that provision, uh, but I think we should concentrate on the covenant elements. These are the things God says you must do for and with and to one another. Therefore, we covenant together to do them. Okay. And so we want to make sure that we recognize that we all have responsibilities to the whole body whenever we're in connection with them. Uh, in fact, one of, one of the things my pastor, Pastor Doran, often will say, I've heard him say it multiple times, you know, sometimes you get up on Sunday morning and you say, okay, what do I have to do today? You know, oh, I've got to make the coffee or, or I have to bring the donuts or I have to teach Sunday school or, or whatever the case. And, and then perhaps you say, you know, you know, this Sunday, I don't have anything to do. And, you know, you just, I just get to go. No, 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 no. You never just get to go because you always have responsibilities. Okay. You might not have some sort of a formal job to do, you know, make the coffee, you know, or, or collect the offering or sing in church or play your instrument or whatever the case may be. But you always have a responsibility. Every single one of those one and other passages is your responsibility every single Sunday. Okay. Doesn't mean you have to do all of those things for everyone in the church, but it should be our goal as soon as we walk into that church to be doing one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. And uh it's a good idea, I think, to review those one another's. In fact, every every interim church I've ever pastored at, the first after the first couple of weeks I'm there, I hand out this little yellow card and it includes all of the one another's. Say, so put this in your Bible. If you wake up some Sunday morning and say, I don't have anything to do, read the little yellow card because you've got something to do. And here it is, you know. And so it, it's, I think it's been a good practice. Okay. So it's, a, it's, it's very important that we, we engage that. So what are our duties? Well, duties to pastors and leaders were to pray for their effectiveness and protection from attack without and within. You know, if you do that, you pray for your pastor. It's hard to, hard to stay mad at him if you're praying routinely for him. You need to pay, obey them in any matter that falls within his official capacity. Now, I, I want to be careful to say that just because he issued, I mean, there, there have been, of course, instances of pastors exceeding their authority as a pastor to talk, to give commands that really have nothing to do with their authority. But if he's, if he's speaking within you know, his, his rightful role as a pastor, a counselor, and a guide. Obedience is the expectation. To visibly honor, esteem, and reward them, not as a charity, but as a debt. Okay? Now you, you say, well, that seems backwards. It's a debt, not a, you know, isn't charity the first, wasn't, shouldn't that be the greatest thing? Well, yes, you should do this because you love them, but also because they deserve it. Okay? Because sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes you don't love them as much as you ought to, and that doesn't lessen your responsibility to them because they watch for your souls as those who must give an account. And so you need to honor them, esteem them, and reward them because this is what they are due. And then to actively support him and resist those who would discredit him. You know, somebody, you know, talking bad mouth in the pastor, you know, you just sort of step in and say, you know, I, yeah. He's been such a, he's been a, you don't have to, you don't have to be nasty about it, but you know, don't, don't say that about my pastor. You know, he's, he's a good man. You know, it's, it's the feet of clay. Sure. But if we got a problem, I know, I, I know that man, he'd want to talk it out with you. So, 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 so talk it out with him. Don't talk it out with the rest of us, you know, support him and resist those who would discredit him. And then we have duties to fellow members, all of the one another's. To assemble regularly with one another. I mean, again, this is, this is starting to come to a head, right? You know, May 30th, you're coming back together and there's the expectation you need to come together because the Bible says you need to come together. Okay. For mutual edification, stimulus to good deeds and to celebrate the Lord's table and the, com- the community that that represents to pray for one another, to support fellow members in grief financial trouble, sickness, not just with lip service, but with real help as you are able to actively discover the cause of interpersonal tensions and admonish one another 
when when sin occurs, this is the whole church discipline thing, to prevent disunity by the exercise of self-sacrifice, prayer, confrontation, refraining from meddling and gossip, and all of these things. I mean, we could really keep going and going and going, but uh, pick up, pick up uh, a concordance sometime, an electronic one. Just put in one another. Look them all up and, and, and make a list and say, these are the things. These are my duties to my brothers and sisters in Christ and uh, engage in those routinely as you come to church on a weekly basis. Okay, any questions up till this point here? If not, then uh, we'll dismiss, and uh, next week we'll start in on the government of the church. We'll spend a little time uh, talking a little bit about some of the approaches to church polity. Uh, there's the papal, episcopal, Presbyterian, congregational. So we'll, we'll take a little bit of time to survey some of those, the strengths and weaknesses of those, and then we'll try and defend as well uh, the congregational principle and see if we can establish that that's the case and then uh, talk about the officers of the church and, and such. Okay, so that's that'll be our goal starting next week. Thank you. We'll see you next week.